class and I have been closeted on our international call, so hence just a couple of minutes late. So good morning, everyone. We now begin the next mode in, in this second cycle, the next mode of shamatha practice, namely of settling the mind in its natural state. And the quality of awareness is the one that is crucial um, because it is right exactly on the borderland between the shamatha and the vipassana. It can go either way. It can lead to the stability, the vividness of shamatha. It can lead to insights that are really directly related to vipassana practice. The quality of awareness and settling the mind is something also that will manifest in multiple contexts in the practice of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. Uh, and we find it in Vipassana, we find it in the teachings of the Buddha in his quintessential instruction to the seeker by the name of Bahia, when he said, in, in the seen, let there be just the seen, in the heard, just the heard, and so forth. What's being implied here, or kind of a subtext, is that there are two types of ignorance, two types of ignorance in Buddhism, two broad classes. Uh, one of these is a type of ignorance, we can call it a cognitive deficit disorder, where there is something that is present, something that is true, and we're not getting it. We're not getting it. It can be as trivial as when you're stepping out the door, your spouse says, buy, buy some bread on your way home. You don't even hear them. The sound waves came to the ear, the, visual, the auditory cortex was activated, but it just quite never made it home, you know? You just heard, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> <laughs> it was spoken very clearly, but never made it in. And why? Well, we just weren't present. We were a wall on that little aspect of reality. And so it can be perceptual, but it can also be conceptual, and that is, one may be presented with evidence that is clear, that it's compelling, and because of one's mindset, not just that one's distracted or one's mind is elsewhere, but because of one's mindset, one just can't see it. It just seems like noise. It just seems like junk. So whatever, whatever one's worldview is, uh, if one is locked into rigidly holding on to a certain doctrine or worldview and so forth, and one is presented with contrary evidence, this is even. I'm not picking on any, any one worldview world here. But one is prevented with, presented with evidence that is contrary to what one already believes, you might think, well, that can't happen, <laughs> and carry right on through, you know. And so never, never mind the facts, I know what I believe, you know. So that's a cognitive deficit. And then there's a cognitive hyperactivity, and this is the other type uh, of so delusion, one can say, where one is perceiving, actually apprehending things that just aren't there. So some of the classic instances of this that have been studied psychologically are people in a crowded movie theater and somebody shouts out, fire! And then there's pandemonium breaks loose and then people are interviewed afterwards, what happened? And people remember all kinds of things happening that never took place. Just because they were projecting, projecting, projecting and they were never able to separate what they were imagining to be, to be taking place to what was actually being dished up to them by reality. And so between these two types, the Buddhist view, that is, this is for in terms of Indian Buddhist schools that have uh, flown into, uh, that has flowed into Tibet, overall, we learn, we learn how to refuse to acknowledge facts, whereas we have an innate ability, an innate tendency to project that which isn't there 
project that which is there. For example, projecting permanence upon that which is manifesting itself as impermanent. Relationships, all kinds of things. How they are manifesting is impermanent. Subtle impermanence, coarse impermanence, but with the power of projection we may imagine that they are durable, unchanging, and so forth. There may be, we may find a person, a situation, or what have you, that is simply not a true source of happiness, and be absolutely convinced, this person, I, couldn't, I can't live without this person. I can't live without this job. If I lose my status, I just may as well commit suicide because I can't possibly be happy if, I, if people don't still regard me as a full professor or a movie star or what have you. And so viewing that which is not a true source of happiness as being absolutely the source of one's happiness. That's a projection. And then finally, that which is not I or mine that is simply an iPhone, is simply a set of buildings or whatever, and imagining that is inherently, that is really me, that is really mine. So those are the three marks of existence. But those tendencies to view the impermanent as permanent, that which is not by nature one a true source of happiness as being a true source of happiness, that which is not I and mine as being I and mind, these are all cognitive hyperactivity. They entail a projection where we completely fuse what we're projecting upon reality with reality. And then we think our projections are really out there, independent of us. Right? So this practice that we're going to go into now momentarily of settling the mind in this natural state is really largely an exercise of pulling back in the tentacles of projection. And as the Buddha said, in the scene, let there be just the scene without superimposing and then conflating our projections, our labels, our expectations, and so forth. And just in the scene, let there be just the scene. In the herd, just the herd. In the tactically perceived, the tactically perceived. And then finally, and this will be our primary focus, of course, in that which is mentally appearing, in the mentally perceived, let, let there be just the mentally perceived, as opposed to all the things that we imagine about our own minds. So we'll circle in, as we did in the first, in the first phase of this, in the, in the initial cycle. We'll circle in the visual, the auditory, the tactile, and then land in the mental. And that's where we'll go into settling the mind in its natural state. Okay? All clear? So the stakes are high here. This is a, an extremely meaningful practice. It can be very transformative and very liberating with respect to our own minds. So you're familiar with it? Settling the mind in its natural state. Let's jump in. As always, let's begin by settling the body in its natural state. Relax still and vigilant, and settle the respiration in its natural rhythm. Uninhibited and effortless.
for a little while settle your mind with the qualities of ease, stillness, and clarity by practicing mindfulness of breathing in any of the three ways, full body, focusing on the rise and fall of the abdomen or the breath at the apertures of the nostrils, whichever you find most helpful. You may count breaths insofar as it's helpful. and let your eyes be open. But this time bring the full force of mindfulness to this elliptical field of visual impressions of shapes and colors. So not vacantly resting your awareness in space, but bringing your full mindfulness to this visual field. But do so quietly, non-reactively, non-discursively. And in the scene, let there be just the scene. What is reality presenting to you in contrast to all the things that we habitually project upon our sensory fields?
and close the eyes and direct the full force of mindfulness to the domain of sound, the auditory field, and in the herd, let there be just the herd. Release all mental imagery, all associations, conceptual labeling, with bare attention, be present with the sounds that arise within this field of experience. Now direct your attention to the tactile field, not thinking so much of body, images of body, borders of the body, but simply this to this domain of experience, of tactile sensations, of the earth element, sensations of solidity and firmness, water element of moisture, fluidity, fire, the gradient from cold to hot, the air element of motion, tingling, vibration. In the sensed, let there be just the sensed, releasing everything else in terms of mental imagery, associations, and so on. Now, once again, let your eyes be open, at least partially. But this time, simply rest your gaze vacantly in the space in front of you without focusing on any visual object, any shape or color. And direct the full force of mindfulness now to the domain of purely mental experience domain of thoughts, mental images, memories, but also the more subjective impulses such as emotions and desires. 
and in the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived. your awareness be loose, relaxed, spacious. And simply observe the nature of whatever arises in the space of the mind. Four instructions for this practice are to maintain your mindfulness focused on the space of the mind and on whatever mental events arise within that domain and to sustain your mindfulness without distraction and without grasping, without being distracted to other sensory fields, without being carried away by thoughts, and without grasping, to observe whatever arises in the mind without preference, without hope or fear, desire or aversion, without labeling, and finally without superimposing the sense of I or mine. Whatever arises, just let it be and observe its nature. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
Picasso. The center, as you all know, is called the, the Mind Center. It could be called the Mind Rehabilitation Center. <laughs> and that is, there are a lot of centers, you know, for drug and alcohol abuse, re rehabilitation, getting over the addiction and so forth. Well, our addiction, uh, hopefully, is not for drugs, alcohol, or any anything of the like, but the addiction, too, in terms of intense habituation and addiction to the obsessive, compulsive flow of thinking, and then delusionally thinking whatever th we're thinking is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So very briefly, in terms of broad strategy, there's like almost like a military strategy. What's the way? This is a massive, a massive, how do you say, habit here of the obsessive and compulsive aspect, and then the delusional. That's three aspects to it, and they're attacking us from three different angles, right? The mindfulness of breathing, and many other shamatha practices, entail, all right, our primary strategy is going to be make a head-on attack, so to speak, to subdue the obsessive aspect, the obsessive aspect. And that is, we're going to get the mind to shut up. We're going to focus on the breathing. We're going to focus on a mental image. We'll do a mantra. We'll do whatever's needed. But we'll just subdue that obsessive flow of thinking so we have some peace and quiet, right? Mindfulness of breathing. That's the strategy. Whatever thought comes up, not now. Subdue it, right? It's not a very subtle technique, but it can be very effective. Sometimes that's the weakest entry and the way to conquer your enemy, right? This approach that we're taking here and for tomorrow and the next day is more subtle. It's more nuanced. So what are we doing with the obsessive flow of thinking? Carlos, what do we do with the thoughts of one obsessive thought? One obsessive thought is arising one after another. What do we do about it? Yeah, but what do we do about the obsessive? Uh, what do we do about the obsessive thinking? There. Subdue. subdue? Yeah. Oh, wrong word. You are doing. You do. Are doing, you are doing so well. You let it be. Yeah. In other words, we're not counteracting the obsessive part. Mindfulness of breathing. Yes. Awareness of awareness. Yes. They come up. Hatchet them. This one, the obsessive flow of thinking, imaginations, emotions, desires, the whole barrage of this cascading waterfall of mental events, we don't even move one millimeter. We're being so cunning. We're kind of letting the mind think, oh yeah, come right in, come on in. And then we get them from the backside. You know? <laughs> we allow the obsessive flow to come in with no restraint, no editing, no censorship. It's an X-rated movie. Okay, X-rated movie. It's terrible violent movie. Okay, terrible violence. It's incredibly crap comedy, situation comedy. <laughs> It's an infomercial, whatever it is. Infomercial, war and peace, all fine. You know? As if we don't really care one way or another. But then in the meantime, we're cutting their supply lines. The obsessive flow is coming up, but what we're not allowing, what's the strategy now? If we're going to let them take the outer ramparts by assaulting the mind with this obsessive flow of thinking, imageries, memory, and so forth, What's our strategy? Hey, what's your strategy? You're letting your, your mind being overcome here. You say, aha, no, I'm not. Because I'm going to cut them off at the compulsive level. The compulsive level is where they really do us the harm. And that is those thoughts, memories, emotions, desires, they catch us, they get us in the talons, and they carry us away. And that's when they really do the harm. Merely showing up doesn't harm. Any more than the Buddha was harmed when Mata you know, showed up. Buddha wasn't harmed. But we get harmed when the compulsive aspect comes in. They catch us. They carry us away. 
you know, we got thrown in the trunk and we just got abducted. That's when we really get harmed. That's called, while we're dreaming, that's called a non-lucid dream. In the waking state, we call that non-lucid thinking or having a non-lucid mind. So it's a, it's a subtle and very cunning tactic to allow them in as if, oh yeah, go ahead and just dominate me all over again. But then we, we turn around and we, we get them right where it hurts, you know, in the grasping. We don't allow ourselves to be carried away by them. We don't allow ourselves to get caught up in grasping onto them. And so they're coming and they're doing, wanting to do all their attacking and so forth. And they've got no target. Because it's like trying to shoot an arrow at space. Did I get it? I'm not quite sure I got it. I shot another arrow. Did I get it? Because it never went thunk. It never got us. It never smacked. Why? Because the grasping was not there. So the thoughts arise, but they're orphaned. The mental afflictions arise, but they're orphaned. They have no owner. They have nothing to latch onto, in which case, even if it's a nasty thought, it's not a mental affliction because it doesn't mentally afflict. And it doesn't mentally afflict because we're not grasping. Right? So it's a very cunning strategy. Final point, and that is in really pretty much all the other shamatha methods, at least that I know of, we're doing all we can to get those thoughts to quiet down, quiet down. We're using some effort, quiet down, releasing, releasing, releasing. And here we're not doing doing that, but we're not doing something very important, and that is we are not throwing more fuel on the fire of obsessive and compulsive thinking, right? And that is to say we're not getting caught up in thoughts, we're not adding to them, we're not saying, yeah, go for it, yeah, I, can, I can add to that, let's do this too, and you know, we're not pitching in, thinking more thoughts, adding to it with grasping and so forth, we're just sitting there as if we're allowing the fire to die out, right? Or if you're in a car, you let the car just go and go and go, but you don't keep on putting fuel in the gas tank until the, the, ga the car just runs out, runs out of fuel. And so that's what's happening here. By not adding fuel to it with, with hope, fear, desire, aversion, and grasping, just attending, then gradually the obsessive flow gradually subsides of its own accord. And then you very happily lose your mind which is to say your mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness and your home. You're back to the ground. Not the ultimate ground, but you're at a very good ground for then the next major st strategy of Vipassana and on beyond that. Okay? So throughout the course of the day, now in between sessions, I would beseech you from my heart, um, don't let down your guard. Every moment, don't let down your guard. Every moment that you fall back into the same rut, Every moment, as you're walking from here to there, you're eating, you're relaxing, whatever, every moment that you let yourself fall back into the same addiction, back into the obsessive, compulsive, delusional flow, then you're just walking away. You're walking away from the practice. You're undermining whatever you do in the meditative session. Right? Just, uh, you're just pulling the, pulling the plug on your own practice. So just be relentless, very gently, but relentless not falling into that habit. And that's where we're really doing a mind rehabilitation. We're rebuilding a mind that is, that's grounded in sanity and clarity, or let's say ease, stillness, and vividness, rather than grounded in the shifting sands of an obsessive, compulsive, delusional flow of thinking that at best is just exhausting. Okay? That said, enjoy your day.